0: My name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. It's a special live edition. I can tell from the fact that you clapped already, that you are as relieved as we are, that Rory is here. (laughs) We hope that Rory can stay. We thought we were gonna have to do this quite quickly. We have a little more time. We will talk about what's happening this evening and then we're gonna broaden it out to talk about what it might mean. More broadly for British politics, for democracy, Just before we start, I wanted to say how delighted I am that this is part of the LRB's 40th birthday celebrations. The LRB is the partner of Talking Politics. We couldn't have done this podcast without them. They've been supporting us for the last two years. Uh, We've just had our 10 millionth download. Most of that has happened in the time we've been working with the LRB and without their support and their generosity, none of this would be possible. So we're thrilled to be here to celebrate the birthday. Of the London Review of Books and now we're going to talk politics.
1: Rory, how come you're here? How come you don't have to run back? Um, well, the, the first thing is can, can you hear me clearly? I, I seem to be I, I got this, this is the sort of thing that happens to conservative politicians. They're going to lose this like Theresa May at the conference speech I'm losing my voice. Um, the reason of course I'm here is that I am actually no longer a conservative politician and therefore these amendments which are amendments on whether the date of the election should be the 7th of December or the 9th of December. That doesn't feel to me as though it's something I should be voting on. I'm not standing again. I'm trying to leave Parliament to become a Mayor of London, so I don't think effectively I have a dog in a fight or really a right to determine what the date of the election will be. But I'll vote for the principle of the election on third reading, but that should mean that I, I should be able to be with you for the next 90 minutes, and then I'll return to the House of Commons for the final vote. I I did say to David, because he was beginning to question me constitutionally on this, uh, how how hard he wanted to push this, because he really convinced me I'd have to leave you in about eight minutes' time. (laughs) We'll
0: turn to Helen Thompson, who's with us as well in a moment. But you have a dog in the wider fight, even though you're standing down. There is a fundamental question at issue tonight, and it relates to the votes that we've already had on Johnson's withdrawal agreement bill, the government's withdrawal <laughs> agreement bill. You were one of the 17 MPs who voted for the second reading but voted against the aggressive timetabling motion. If we do get an election tonight, and I think, can we assume that we are going to get an election yeah. tonight? Right, so we are going down that route. Yeah. Was that a choice made by the government because they effectively decided that there was no way of getting the withdrawal agreement bill through, that the 17 of you or some of you couldn't be swung around? Or was it a decision that regardless of that, an election was the preferred option? Do you have a sense of how you were being viewed? My
1: my sense is it's the latter. There was a big concerted attempt to try to convince the government that a lot of people would be prepared to vote on third reading. But I think the the calculation seems to have been from Dominic Cummings, particularly in, in the end number 10, that they would rather go into an election with Brexit unresolved than go into election with a Brexit deal. And I think there's potentially a a number of bad and good reasons muddled up in that. I'm speculating because I, I obviously have nothing to do with number 10. They don't really speak to me very much at the moment. But my sense is firstly that there is an anxiety. And a guy in my constituency who voted Brexit said this. He said that if Boris went to an election without Brexit delivered as a Brexiteer, he would vote for Boris. If Brexit had already been delivered, he would feel that Boris had done his job and then he wouldn't vote for Boris. He drew the analogy with Churchill at the end of the Second World War, that he would be voting for Boris for one purpose and one purpose only. I think the second thing is it allows them to create this narrative of people against Parliament and use the fact that somebody like me voted against the program motion as a sign that Parliament's obstructing to get the the movement going. And then there are calculations also about who they want to remove from the whip, because by going straight into an election now, it means that Philip Hammond, David Gork, Ken Clark, and myself, I'm a bit different because I've, I've decided to leave, but they're all people who wouldn't be able to stand again in their own constituencies. The only good reason for it, I suppose, if you were going to defend the decision, is to say that it does at least give the public an opportunity to express a view in some indirect form on this deal. And therefore, were they to win a very large majority off the back of this, there might, be, there might be an argument that there would be a little bit more legitimacy for the deal than if they just tried to drive it through the House of Commons at the moment. But that obviously is a subject for much bigger debate.
0: Yeah, and, we, and we're going to come on to that because we, we want to talk more broadly about what it would be in the wider context of British democracy to get consent from the people who are going to feel whatever happens, that they have been excluded from this. But Helen, did you, did you have, I mean, We were talking about this beforehand. And from the outside, it's very hard to judge what the calculations are inside Downing Street at the moment. Because the alternative view, the, the public-facing view, was that simply the business of getting the withdrawal agreement bill through, getting the 17 of you, but particularly the Labour MPs, to vote for it in the end, was not a fight worth having relative to this. Do you have a sense, Helen, of which way this was likely to go? We're not going down that route, but had had the election not happened?
2: I'm not sure whether I've got an opinion, really, on what their actual motivations were for, for different reasons. To Rory, I obviously got no inside view about what's going on in number 10. I do think that there were reasonable reasons to suppose that the path of the withdrawal agreement bill through the House of Commons would have been pretty fraught. And I think that it was the possibility of an amendment over the customs union that was particularly difficult in this respect. And I spent quite a bit of time over the weekend trying to work out what those who said they wanted to push such an amendment were actually trying to achieve without really reaching any clear knowledge about what they were trying to achieve. And I think that does get to the heart of the difficulty is were they looking to amend the political declaration in ways that would try to ensure there would be a customs union as part of the future economic relationship well given the backstop's gone that's actually really rather difficult to achieve because the political declaration hasn't got anything from the withdrawal agreement any longer that sort of structurally creates a bias in favor of a customs union at least not to the extent that it did when the backstop was in place so if you then want to amend the political declaration in the direction of a customs union, what you're then trying to do is to bind a future government, a future executive in the way it would negotiate and in some sense bind a parliament in the way in which it would vote. And you can't do that under the British constitution now. You can say we don't really have a constitution any longer and I'm somewhat tempted to that (laughs) um, view, but we're still supposed to have a constitution. So it seems to me that 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 way lay muddle But if, on the other hand, the idea was to amend the withdrawal Agreement Bill in relation to the withdrawal treaty in the direction of a customs union, well, you can't do that because it's not for the legislature to change a treaty that's been negotiated with the EU 27. So
0: is the implication of that that, therefore, though it looked very precarious when it came to it, in the end, this bill wasn't really amendable in a way that could produce a majority in Parliament for something other than its core. Well, I think that that,
2: that's where it becomes more complicated again, because then you could say, well, given the way that some of the ERG MPs have behaved, would they really have swallowed the line? It doesn't matter whether you amend the political declaration or not, because it it doesn't actually matter. And I find it hard to believe that some of them actually would.
0: Because Rory, in a way, that's the question, one of the most remarkable features. Was that there was unanimity among Conservative MPs who are still fully Conservative MPs on both the second reading and on the timetabling motion, that the government got all 285 of them through the lobby on both. Could it have held?
1: Would it have held? I don't know. I don't know. I, I think, to be fair to the government, it probably would have been quite difficult. Remember, I mean, the, the other backstory to this Customs Union Amendment is, of course, from the point of view. Of people who rejected Theresa May's deal, they rejected it on the grounds that it was effectively a customs union. So the entire point of this new deal, of the difference between Boris's deal and Theresa May's deal, was getting rid of the customs union. So had you amended it to try in some funny fashion to reinsert a customs union, and I say this to somebody who's in favour of customs union, I, I organised the Ken Clark amendment pushing for a customs union, and we actually failed by only three votes in getting it through in the indicative votes. It was my attempt to try to get a soft Brexit compromise. But it is quite clear that this deal, this Boris Johnson deal, the main point of it was to try to leave a customs union. So had you reinserted a customs union, into, I think it's very difficult to believe the ERG were going along with that. And was it reinsertable for the reasons that Helen said? I mean, once... Not, not in a binding way. I mean, Helen's no. absolutely right. that, And in fact, actually, there was an extraordinary last-minute attempt by the whips and various others to get people to sign a letter saying we will agree only to make amendments which are not legally binding on the next parliament, right? As though people were going to feel really good about signing that document, you know, a few days before an election. So it wouldn't have been legally binding, but it was, as you say, almost the worst of all worlds. I mean, sufficiently provocative to the ERG, but actually not really achieving it. So in a way, we've got two explanations for what's going on tonight, one of which is that it would
0: have been hard for the government, the other of which is that actually the government prefers this route anyway because as an electoral strategy, it's so effective. And I have been thinking You know, people... I mean, you can tell us what role you think Dominic Cummings is playing in the fate of this nation, but there are polarising views. Some people think that he's a Machiavellian genius. Some other people think that he's a monster. The person he reminds me of is Alistair Campbell, partly because... And people take that view about Campbell too. But because Campbell always used to say just at the point where the people inside Westminster, or even not that close to Westminster, think if they have to hear the line again, they will be physically sick. The public have got it. And the coming strategy seems to me to be that he thinks now the public have got it. It's making many people inside political life almost physically sick to see the lengths that have been gone to, but the, and the line is he tried his damned hardest.
1: Yes, I mean, and I think a lot of this is Cummings, and... In a sense, he, he would, you would have thought had quite a good um, career as a sort of copywriter. This take-back-control phrase uh, is just one example of his extraordinary ability to generate three-word phrases. I went out for a, a lunch in Chinatown with him when I was... It's the only time, actually, I've ever spoken to him. We had dim sum together in Chinatown for an hour. And this was when I was running for the conservative leadership, and he said... What you've got to say is you've got to say there are only three things that need to be done. Get Brexit done. Beat Jeremy Corbyn. Reunite the country, right? There's three things, right? And sure enough, sure um, enough, sure enough. I'm two, sure I've heard those yeah, yeah. from someone else. Exactly. So sure <laughs> enough, two days later, right, Sajid Javid tweets out, there are only three things you've got to do. <laughs> and then Jeremy Hunt, three things you've got to do. And then finally, Boris, there yes. are three things we've got to do. It's a great knack, that, to be able to generate phrases that, that every campaign thinks is genius, yeah. And so now we're doing them in a different order. <laughs> so it's not get Brexit
0: done, defeat Jeremy Corbyn, reunite the country. It's defeat Jeremy Corbyn, get Brexit done, reunite the country. I think the last one is probably impossible. <laughs> so so in a way, that, 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 that's <laughs> that, the wider question. I mean, I, Helen, I don't know if you want to kick off this bit of the discussion. And by the way, because we've got Rory, we hope for the whole evening, we're going to have plenty of time for questions from the audience too. though, tell us if your phone says something different. (laughs) I don't want to promise you going to be here if you're not. So there is this much bigger question, which is whatever happens, but particularly now that the route is through a general election, and therefore, not in the immediate term through a second referendum. Some people relatively soon, people who may be hoping against hope that their preferred outcome is still an option, are going to find that it's not. And reuniting the country has to mean securing what the phrase is used often, losers' consent, which is the thing that has been missing from British politics for the last three-plus years. If there's one thing that we haven't had, it's any sense from the people who might lose that they would consent to lose. So now we're passing through the pretty narrow prism of a general election. Even if the Conservative Party were to win a majority, it's going to be on, what, 40% of the vote maximum? So that still leaves a lot of losers.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Why would they think that now is the time to consent?
2: I mean, uh, <laughs> quite obviously, quite a number of them On, I think we shouldn't overdo this, though, in that... It's not that everybody who voted Remain in 2016 has not accepted the referendum result. There's clearly quite a significant number of Remain voters who have done. I mean, the polling on this varies, but some of the polls you can see up to 60% saying that the referendum result should be honoured, and then those who are saying that it shouldn't be are down in more like in the 20, 25%, let's say. So then you've got quite a lot of don't knows. Now, they may think very differently if they could have the referendum again, but if you ask the question, the referendum took place, should we accept the result and implement it, you can get polling in that area. I think the, the interesting thing that's happened in terms of the future in a way of, of losers' consent is a change of, the change of tact that the Liberal Democrats in particular have made over the last few weeks. Because I think the interesting thing about Brexit in this respect is that... If you go back to the referendum, in some ways the referendum was a way that allowed a Leave coalition to express itself in referendum politics. It would have been much more difficult for it to have done in a general election, not least because it allowed people who voted Labour, who wanted to vote for Brexit, to vote for Brexit without having to think of voting Conservative. And one of the difficulties then that we've been in since June 2017 is is that Theresa May, thinking that she could mobilise that constituency back into general election politics, turned out to be not correct, and that Labour Leavers believed that they could vote for the Labour Party and that they would still get Brexit, and indeed Labour was able to take votes back from those Labour voters who had lost to UKIP, particularly in 2015. So general election politics in 2017 actually then disadvantaged the Leave coalition. And you can see that the Liberal Democrats' position, when they've not been talking about revoke, has obviously been about getting back to a second referendum and hoping that that is the means of defeating the first. Now, they're gambling this time, because the Liberal Democrats are the ones who've changed the parliamentary arithmetic on having this election. They're gambling this time on a, on a general election, which, from the point of view of Remain, is pretty disadvantageous, because, A, as you say, you only need 40%-ish to vote for the Conservative Party... And at the same time, as we know, that there are many more Leave constituencies than there are Remain constituencies, if you go back to 2016 and map it onto a general election map. Because Remain voters are more geographically concentrated than Leave voters are. So is it
0: possible that this election fundamentally favours the Leave coalition?
2: In principle, yes. And I say (laughs) in principle, because partly I've become wary, as you know, about making any kind of predictions but at the same time is you're still going to insert into an election that looks like it's about Brexit all these domestic issues. Yeah. And so it can still be the case that actually the Conservatives can't peel enough off of the non-Tory Leave voters yeah. to vote Conservative. So, Rory,
0: do you, on that analysis, do you think that Remain Britain, if this election disadvantages them in the way that it's sort of advantaged them in 2017, and on a 40% whatever vote share, if, if the Conservative Party get to that, we get Johnson's Brexit.
1: Is Remain Britain reconcilable to that? Well, I'm going to be very cheeky, because <laughs> I'm very interested in this idea. I mean, I'm interested in the idea of how many people who voted Remain believe that we should honour the result of the referendum, whether this loses consent. How many people in this room who voted Remain feel that you should honour the result of the referendum? This is an entirely representative sample of the UK population. That's actually actually very encouraging. I mean, I was assuming that almost no hands would go up. I, I feel a little bit encouraged. I mean, I'm somebody who voted Remain. And argued strongly for Remain, and then felt after the referendum that we had to honor that result. The impression I get, obviously, on social media is that literally nobody agrees with me, and I'm the only Remainer who, in any way, feels that they should honor the result of the referendum. It struck me that this was about 30% of the room, which was interesting. I was assuming because literally almost every friend I have is in favor of a second referendum, wants to overturn the result of the referendum, and thinks the first referendum was illegitimate, uh, that I wouldn't get that on my hands. How many people in the room think that? if the Conservatives win a big majority, that would give a bit more legitimacy to Boris's deal. Okay, that's interesting. Okay. Sorry, I took that to be slightly fewer. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I look, these things are very, very odd. I mean, I don't know, really, how to think my way through this because I began from a very sort of primitive view, which is that we disagree about things and... Nobody's gonna convince me that I was wrong to think that Britain was better off in the European Union or that we already had the best deal, but the fact was I lost. And that there's sort of rules, and the rules in our society are that we kind of accept that the majority view. And it's been a very, very interesting experience to discover that some of my most highly intelligent, sophisticated friends, including some very distinguished political philosophers, are absolutely determined to reject this outcome. I don't know how they think we should be resolving disputes in our society. I don't know how they would want me, as a politician, to respond to votes in the future if this is their their view. I, I almost feel like saying, when people say to me, you know, you can never be mayor of London unless you come out immediately for revoke, you must immediately take the Lib Dem view. I, I sort of feel like saying, but do you really want a politician who's not going to pay any attention to the way that you vote and is just going to say, I disagree? So, I mean, Anyway, I found this a very complicated process,
0: and I haven't really got to the end of it. It is really tough, and I mean, part of it is to do with the rules of the game. I mean, that's the other challenge here, which is... I mean, we're seeing it tonight. So there is an election in which there is probably more at stake than there has been, relatively speaking, in any election in recent memory, because this is an election about two things. It's about who you want to govern the country, and for the reasons you said, the danger for Johnson is that if Brexit were done, it could become a... you know, 2017 domestic election again. So it's now about two things. People are very, very frightened of losing this election, particularly in Parliament. And therefore, what we're seeing tonight, we don't know how it's going to play out, is people trying to tinker with the rules. I mean, at least potentially trying to tinker with the rules. Because there's too much at stake in this election. And that seems to me to be one of the big risks for securing consent in the future, which is what we're actually doing each time we try and get to our decisive electoral outcome is gaming it, which makes it much harder to persuade the losers that they
1: lost fair and square. So so there is a problem. I mean, I'm I'm actually at the moment pretty grateful to be leaving Parliament. I think the basic setup is wrong. I think if you were looking at it in 50 or 100 years' time, it wouldn't make sense. I mean, there are a couple of things that are obviously wrong. The first thing is that we clearly don't really have a constitution in the way that other countries have a constitution. I noticed this first. My first big rebellion was when... David Cameron tried to effectively abolish the House of Lords on the basis of a simple majority in the House of Commons. That really sort of broadened the focus, the fact that in any other country, constitutional law is different from normal law. You need some special procedure to do it. You can't just get a simple vote in the House of Commons to do this. But there's something deeper than that, which is that I really am beginning to think that this is basically a medieval setup. parliament. The idea is that you guys get a vote once every you know, two years, five years, and then you have to agree to subcontract your brain to, I, I'm not gonna say Pretty Patel, but in, in any case, somebody, somebody uh, in government who then governs for you, and then they decide at the end of two or five years that they are gonna let you have another one vote again. I mean, whereas in fact, actually, of course, you're much more educated, much more experienced in many ways, the many people in the House of Commons, but we haven't really got a system going where you're really able to deliberate and consider things in depth and and feed into this process properly. So anyway, that, that's that's enough for me. Yep. Uh,
0: Helen, where for you is the most acute constitutional pressure point?
2: I think it's actually that we have just, as a country, forgotten what our constitution is, and I think that that's true of many members of Parliament. I think that is true of many of us as citizens. I don't, before the last few years, exclude myself from that. I think it's taken Brexit and what's happened over the last few years, I think, to make something really clear about our country's politics, and that is, is that it had a historic constitution. And the only way in which it worked was that people had a knowledge about the history of that constitution, and indeed the country's political history, and that particularly those in Parliament, but actually as citizens needed to understand this as well, acted with some caution, with some prudence in relation to that constitutional history because that's what the constitution rested upon, continual judgment. And often that that involved in the past actually having quite a lot of elections. You can see that I think in the middle of the, the 19th century. And at some point, I think that joining the EU did have something to do with this, but I don't think it was the only reason for it to happen. At some point along the way, we, we lost sight of what our constitution was. And then we've tried to deal, since June 2016, with a massive constitutional crisis, with most people walking around in a state of constitutional ignorance. And I think that that is why we could get to this, what I regarded as this absurd situation this afternoon, where you have members of parliament signing amendments wanting in the course of an afternoon to change the franchise. You know before an election takes place it, it's mind-boggling yeah. from any constitutional yeah. I mean, perspective. So, so, and
1: anybody's not followed this that literally amendments being put down to give 16, 17 year- olds the vote with no debate, no consideration, no proper scrutiny today, on the eve of
2: And EU nationals as well I mean
1: people don't want to think about process I mean you can agree that 16 year- olds should have the vote or you but surely you feel this isn't the way to do it, to make that kind of decision at the last moment. I mean, that's what I felt about Cameron's attempts to abolish the House of Lords. I mean, agree or disagree about abolishing the House of Lords, but you can't just, for the sake in that particular case, for trade with the Lib Dems to reduce the number of MPs so he could win more seats in Parliament, just get rid of the second chamber. I mean, it's, it's mad. And the way that the Speaker's been behaving has been mad, and the way that the programme motions have been arranged are mad. I mean... The whole thing is, is so shoddy. I mean, it's the contempt for everything, for the monarchy, for parliament, the proroguing, the purging. I mean, it's, it's all part and parcel of a general sort of contempt for the Constitution. I mean, oddly, you, you see that often the people who are playing fast and loose with it, and it's on both sides. I mean, we notice it when the Brexiteers do it, but the Remainers have been doing it too. But often you have these very, very sort of grand, Statements by people who have merits and demerits, but you know the speaker uh, and Jacob Rees-Mogg and Dominic Grieve are all, in different ways, playing strange games with the Constitution while posing as great, great defenders of the Constitution. And it's one
0: of the the things that we've learned: the great risk with it's not unwritten, but it is uncodified. So nothing is out of bounds that once you start a politics where people channel their political ambitions through the rules of the game and changing the rules of the game, this way of doing politics can no longer work. And does that mean that therefore, the one thing that we must have is some set of rules that take some of the rules of the game out of parliamentary politics, which means we need a codified constitution?
1: I mean, I I don't know how we're going to get there, but... but. Well, I'm I'm increasingly deeply tempted towards that view. I was very, very cheered up by the Supreme Court. The sentence I love most in that Supreme Court ruling is when the court says, and it's going to offend half the audience, but the court says, um, it is not for this court to determine uh, whether or not Brexit should happen. That decision was made by the people. But that parliament should have a say in the form in which that Brexit should take place is indisputable. Now, it's very rare to get someone crisply articulating a vision of the relationship between direct democracy and direct democracy in the courts. And I'm very cheered up to see the Supreme Court beginning to do a bit of political
0: philosophy. Because many people on that day were enormously cheered by I know them, you know, people who finally thought that some, as they saw it, reasonable perspective had been injected into this, and yet from there to where we are today, it goes back to Parliament. And it's hard to feel that that judgment has a lasting resonance in British politics, unless it can somehow be enshrined. I mean, it puts it back on Parliament, and Parliament is behaving the way that Parliament is behaving today. Do you think it does it echo through, or was it a
1: a moment in time? I mean, you've very eloquently addressed this question of unwritten rules and respect for historical precedent and the notion of prudence. I mean, fundamentally, the, the point is the question of who guards the guards themselves. Theoretically, these constitutions exist to protect you against abuse of Parliament. And if, if Parliament starts playing around with those rules, something very odd is going on. And I suppose the oddity in Britain is that it's taken us so long to really start doing it in such an egregious fashion, that people behaved so well for so long, it seems to be the mystery. Not that eventually they decided... That there's a I don't know whether you've seen this strange interview that Mrs. Thatcher gives in the early 1970s where she's asked I think by Robin Day or someone on television whether there should be a referendum on joining the common market and she says um, no because what would happen if the people in the referendum voted in a way that was different from the majority in parliament? We would have a constitutional crisis. So at that stage she'd been convinced. The early 1970s—that this was about. She did change her mind about that. She reverend. did change
2: her <laughs> <history>. mind <laughs> uh, about uh, that. The thing that concerns me about having a written constitution, even though I'm not entirely clear how we can carry on with what we have got, is the great advantage of the British constitution historically was that it was quite responsive to democratic politics. It was quite responsive to public opinion. In you might say, with all the, the good side of that and the the ills of that too. And the more codified constitution that you end up with, the more power you are going to give to people at Westminster. I mean, that is where codified constitutions go. And you're going, give more, you're going to give more authority to your judiciaries as well. We've seen what kind of politics that ends up with in the United States. It ends up backing democratic politics in a very bitter and polarizing way. So, I mean, I've come to the view that I would like us to hold on to what we've had. I'm just... Nervous. But you also think we've lost it. But I do think we've lost it and it's a question about whether we can get it back again and, and, I've, and, and I'm quite sceptical about whether we can get it back again but I'm also pretty sceptical about going down the road of, a, road of a written constitution. Let
1: me try to illustrate this why I'm actually tempted to agree with this I for example am an enormous fan of citizens' assemblies I mean I think you mostly know about them but essentially it's a grand jury so you select at random citizens to be representative, maybe a room about half this size and then they listen to evidence, and they come up with a view. And this worked very well in Ireland over the issue of abortion, and I was very keen to try to do it in relation to Brexit, because it's remarkable, actually, that people do emerge with a recent compromise. Now, this relates to this question of Constitution. I suspect that if I had become leader of the Conservative Party, I would have been able to bring in a Citizens' Assembly relatively easily, and given it quite a lot of authority and legitimacy in our system, and i actually thinking about it. I'm concerned that if we lived in a more codified world, um, it sounds like I have to go for third reading. Okay. All right. I will run back. I promise. I, I will run back. Oh, my God. Okay. I'm, I'm leaving this here. I'm, I'm, leaving, this here. I, I'm leaving this
0: here. So, um, <laughs> So I don't know if people listening to this podcast will believe us when we say (laughs) that he literally did run out of the room halfway through that thought. So now I don't know (laughs) whether we should complete that thought for him now that he's not here. (laughs) I think what we should do, because Rory will be back, is Helen and I should just try and, as it were, wrap that bit up. Then when Rory comes back, I think we can bring him into the the Q&A then. I don't know how quickly he can run. <laughs> to... <laughs> so there, there are citizens' assemblies. And I have to say, I'm more sceptical, though I'm also a fan. I'm more sceptical than Rory in the current situation that introducing a citizens' assembly now... I mean, there was... You may remember there was an attempt at the point where Parliament couldn't decide what it wanted to do. It just kept voting against various Brexit options. There was an attempt by a group of MPs to get Parliament to commit to a Citizens' Assembly to help with Brexit. I'm convinced that a Citizens' Assembly at the start of the referendum process, as part of the discussions about what the referendum was for, how it should be fought, even what the question should be, would have been helpful. To introduce a Citizens' Assembly now would be catastrophic, because the idea that that would have any more legitimacy than anything else seems to be absurd, but... The other thing that's at issue here is the union. And I was going to go on and ask Rory about that. And maybe when he comes back, we can pick up on this. Because we don't only just have a constitution that is under enormous pressure and is essentially, I think we all agree, in various ways, being abused. The union is also probably under greater pressure than it has been in our lifetime. Do you think this election is going to be another potential breaking point for the union? I mean, there is a view, and there is a view Again, the, the, the Johnson's coming calculation is that um, the sacrifice of the union is a price worth paying for Conservative hegemony in England.
2: I very much doubt that that's Johnson's view about Scotland. I think that we, we have to distinguish when it comes to the union between the issues in relation to Northern Ireland and the issues in relation to, to Scotland. Because I think that there is a, a possible you know, like direction of travel within the Conservative Party, whereby commitment to the Union, including Northern Ireland, may well weaken through time. And I think in retrospect, what has become clear is is the one sort of overriding, unbending commitment that Theresa May made, made through her negotiations of the withdrawal agreement was her commitment to Northern Ireland's place in the Union and, at the same time, not wishing to have any change at all on the border between Ireland and Northern Ireland. Everything else that she did, even freedom of movement during the transitions, there was bend in it. Over those questions, she didn't bend at all. She was a passionate unionist when it came to Northern Ireland. I think that there's a direction of travel, as I say, within the Conservative Party that will move away from that kind of commitment. And I think that... The agreement that um, Boris Johnson has negotiated has put the the unionists in a very difficult position. They're in a very difficult position because they're being asked to agree to something that clearly violates the spirit, at least, and to a certain extent the practice um, of the union in keeping Northern Ireland in the Customs Code in particular. But they've also been put into a difficult position because this withdrawal agreement, unlike the one Theresa May Negotiated has got a consent mechanism for Northern Ireland in it, and it's based on a majority. And the democratic unionists are not themselves, or indeed the whole unionist community, is not united, although it is the majority in Northern Ireland, it is not united about Brexit, and it's not united about avoiding or prioritising, I should say, Northern Ireland's position economically within the United Kingdom over an all-Ireland economy. So... I think that there's lots more tensions to come in the relationship between the Conservative Party and unionism in Northern Ireland. I think the the paradox in Scotland, I think I've said this before, is, is that everything in the short term looks like it strengthens the nationalist case in Scotland. But everything in the medium to long term about Brexit, if it happens, weakens it. Because the whole independence project rests on shared European Union membership. It rested on... Scotland being able as an independent state to get inside the EU, and it rested on the rest of the United Kingdom staying in the European Union. We've already seen how much difficulty the euro issue and the currency issues caused the nationalists in the, in the 2014 referendum before they have to start dealing with this single market of the United Kingdom versus a single market of the European Union, possibility of a hard border in Scotland. So although that the, that I think that this election the Conservatives will certainly lose seats to the Nationalists in Scotland, and indeed the other Unionist parties may well lose seats to the Nationalists. So we're going to see an intensifying of the pressure for a referendum in Scotland. At the same time, I still think that if, if Britain ends up leaving the European Union, then that makes an independent Scotland more difficult to realise.
0: But in a way, then, it depends on whether the referendum, if it comes, is played out in short-term politics yeah. or medium-term politics, because we know that short-term politics can, in the end be the thing that decides it. It must at least be possible.
2: But it's very difficult to see how a Scottish referendum is going to come before the Brexit issue is resolved.
0: Fully resolved.
2: I'm not suggesting in relation to whether that means an economic future, the future economic relationship. I meant the resolution of whether we are leaving or not.
1: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
2: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees.
1: Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: Okay, so I want to ask Helen one more thing or briefly discuss one more thing about this coming election. And if Rory runs back in and says that the third reading was lost, we're going to have to... Rejected by 20. Oh, that's just the date. That's the date. So does someone want to tell us where we are in real time at 8.15? <laughs> so we've done a few of these live events in the past, and I've said if something really dramatic happens, someone needs to shout it out. on third reading now. OK. The proposed date is now... So, uh, (laughs) Helen, if there is an election, and when Rory comes back, he can tell us what actually happened in Parliament. And if he doesn't come back, then we know it's all kicked off. Uh, We've been speculating, because the polls point this way, but we've been burned once too often, the possibility of a Conservative majority, which is still, I think, quite hard to construct. But there is clearly hope among the other parties that it could go radically different ways. So the 2017 election did two things in a way. So one we've touched on is that the Unionist case was strengthened, the the Unionist parties, and include Labour in that in this context, picked up seats from the SNP in Scotland. That looks unlikely this time. But then in England, the other thing that did happen was that two-party politics reasserted itself. And in a way, this is the big question for this election. Will ultimately two-party politics reassert itself in 2019? And at the moment, on the Brexit side, the polling suggests that the Conservatives have done much better than Labour in reasserting themselves as the place to go if you want Brexit to happen. The question really is whether on the other side, the belief that ultimately, if you want to stop a Conservative government, a Labour vote is your best bet, also reasserts itself.
2: Yeah, I, I think that there's, there's something interesting that's happened in the way in which the, the Liberal Democrats have moved over the last 10 days or so. And that I think that they are thinking as much about their competition with Labour as they are the issue of Brexit. And I think that they are, I mean, as I say, I'm, I'm reconstructing this from the outside because I certainly don't have any inside knowledge um, of, of this, are thinking that they absolutely need to fight a general election, with Jeremy Corbyn still as leader of the Labour Party, and that there's been enough movement within both the Parliamentary Party, Corbyn's office, McDonald's office, all those issues of personnel around them, to think that that might be up for grabs in the short term. So, beyond the, this so the Liberal
0: Democrat urgency to have an election the, is more about Corbyn than about Brexit?
2: I'm not saying it's more about Corbyn than it's about Brexit, but I'm saying it's partly about Corbyn, I suspect, as well as about... Brexit. They do not want to fight any, an election with some alternative Labour leader. So they are back to the difficulty that they had in 2015 and that they were squeezed and that although that they weren't in quite a strong position in the opinion polls when that election started, if you wind back about six weeks, Sorry, so, 2017. 15, yeah, six weeks or so, is they weren't in a bad position. There were certainly people at the beginning of that campaign in 2017 who were speculating that the Liberal Democrats would do better in terms of percentage of the vote than um, Labour would. And then what happened over the course of the election is is that a very strong anti-Tory dynamic set in to the benefit of the Labour Party. Now, I can see ways in which that might happen again, because when it really comes to it, If there is any chance for those who want to stop Brexit happening, then the Conservatives have to be deprived of their majority. And it's still easier to do that in most seats by voting Labour than it is by voting for the Liberal Democrats. On the other hand, I think that the dynamic that Labour benefited from, or one of the dynamics, I should say, that Labour benefited from in 2017 was that lots of people could say, I'm voting Labour for my local MP, and I'll just turn a blind eye to the fact that I really don't want Jeremy Corbyn to be Prime Minister. And because I didn't see any possibility that Jeremy Corbyn could be Prime Minister, that didn't seem like a very agonising choice. But given that 2017's happened, and that it's not beyond the realms of possibility that Jeremy Corbyn could be Prime Minister, I'm not sure that, that if you like simply splitting your mind into two ways of thinking about it can quite work in the same way in which it, it did then.
0: And finally, the hopes that are being expressed that there will be coordination, not just tactical voting, not just leaving up to voters to work out what's the best bet of stopping both the Tory majority and Brexit for whatever reason. They might be different reasons, but that there will be organised guidance in relation to candidates in different constituencies. I mean, if this election is coming in six weeks, there's not a lot of time to arrange that. And there's quite a lot of mistrust across the board in British politics between all of the main players. But do you think it could be different this time?
2: I'm not saying it will be different, but I think it could well be different. And as I say, and I think that is as much to do with Corbyn as it is to do with anything else, because he is in a position where, on the one hand, it doesn't look like the most likely scenario that he could end up leading the largest um, party. And yet, on the other hand, because everything is so uncertain and there's been so much turbulence in the ways in which voters have reacted to things over the last few years, it's not out of the bounds. And I think the other thing we need to think about is, is if there is a realistic prospect that Corbyn could be prime minister, then the 2015 dynamic will also come back into play which is that Labour would need almost certainly to be in some kind of a parliamentary arrangement with the SNP. And then then that opens up the Conservatives' playing the card that they did in 2015, which is to say that you, in voting Labour, are basically voting for the SNP to have too much influence in English affairs. Um, That worked very well for the Conservatives in 2015. It didn't work in 2017 because there wasn't sufficient fear amongst the potential voters that argument could appeal to, that the scenario could actually happen. But it's pretty clear this time that the scenario could happen, so the fear factor about the SNP can come back into play.
0: OK, so each time the door opens, I keep thinking that our besuited hero is going to come running back in, but he hasn't yet. So this is one of those things I think we should take a few questions now, because when Rory comes back, it would be great to not least hear what's actually happened... Ta da! (laughs) We've just been chatting. Uh, And then a couple of people shouted out things that were on their phones, and we thought we should wait for you to come back to tell us what's happened. What's
1: happened? So, um. (laughs) Or do you want to catch your breath? Uh, Firstly, the only. That was quick. The main thing to remember is that from the moment the division bell goes, there's exactly eight minutes, and then they shut the doors on you. So, um, said <laughs> if any of you have to do it again, the important thing is to understand when you get to the bottom of the stairs that the entrance uh, and, and the exit is a bit different to what you're expecting. And then you've got to jump over the um, new security procedures that they've set up outside the House of Commons <laughs> without the policeman getting too worried about you, and then you've got to somehow get in through the door. Um, Did you make you, it? Uh, made it, and having made it all the way, I discovered that the... The first person I noticed as I walked into my division lobby was John McDonnell, who I was standing next to, at which point I realised that there wasn't much chance of this vote being lost. In fact, the, the whole... But, uh, yeah, so, so both the Conservative and Labour parties were out en masse voting for third reading, so we have an election. And do we have a date? Ah, uh, that's... I don't know. That do we I don't have know. a date? Who, who knows? Well,
0: that, well, OK, thank you. So you said thank that before. I don't you know why I didn't much. believe you. OK, great. Thank you. you. <laughs> okay, thank you. Great. So we've, been, so we've done the union, that's sorted. Uh, we've talked about the, <laughs> the possibility uh, of whether we're going to get 2015 again or 2017 again. We were about to open it up to questions. I'd like to ask you, Rory, a couple more questions before we take things from the audience. And it's really about your, your own future, but also your relationship to British party politics. So you are no longer a capital C conservative. You are presumably, in some sense, still a small C Conservative?
1: Are you? I, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I suppose my answer to this is I um, come from a conservative tradition that, broadly speaking, believes in, in individual rights and limited government, prudence at home, restraints abroad, certain respect for tradition. Uh, I like small farmers in Cumbria. Um, uh, so you're running to be mayor of London. So, in, so I'm running to be mayor of London. So, in in some sense, that's a good, it's a good gag. I'm a, I'm a conservative in that sense. I mean, I'm not. Um, yeah. At the same time, I'm not really very party political. I mean, I I, I uh, was a Labour Party member in my youth, and then I um, I actually only joined the Conservative Party uh, three months before I was elected as a Conservative MP. Uh, so I I um, haven't been a member of the Conservative Party very long. But I don't think I've been a Uh, they threw me out before I'd reached my 10th year. And how, given that you did join late, you then were in
0: Parliament, and there you had to vote with the whip. and It was an issue that has caused you problems over the years. How constraining did it feel? I mean, how unnatural
1: did it feel as a non-party member to be... it's, It's very constraining and unnatural, because it's essentially part of the general problem with our contract with the public, which is that, on the one hand, of course, we say to the public, look, you need your MP to be part of a party and to be whipped. Otherwise, you can't guarantee that when you vote for a manifesto, that manifesto is going to be delivered. On the other hand, of course, we also have an idea of the independent MP who votes with their conscience, who shows their moral courage, and votes against the government. So very, very difficult things to balance up. Burke famously is a bit suspicious of the idea of the independent and thinks that parties are quite useful as a way of organizing people. But it is basically very, very demoralizing, because you lose all um, sense of autonomy. I mean, the the truth of the matter is that when you ask most MPs in a division lobby what they're voting on, they they pause and struggle for a moment to work out what it is they're voting on. Because if you understand that uh, my friend Richard Bennion, I think, voted once against the government in his life and was probably had the Conservative whip removed from him, you get a sense of how rare it is. I think Mrs. Thatcher never voted against the government in her entire career. So the idea that there's much point in these MPs really scrutinizing legislation in detail is a little bit misleading, and and therefore everything we're taught in school about what the point of being an MP is in terms of scrutiny or what the point of a legislature or parliament is seems a bit odd, when the actual lived reality is that if you're in the Labour Party or the Conservative Party almost all the time unless you're Jeremy Corbyn, you, you do what the whip says. Yeah. Yeah. And so finally, before we
0: ask our audience to ask us some questions, we, we talked about the strains on the Constitution while you were out of the room. We talked about the strains on the Union. The parties themselves are under deep strain and this is a phenomenon across Europe. It's a phenomenon that established political parties of the left and the right, particularly <laughs> social democratic parties, but also centre left parties. You see it in Germany, uh, you've seen it in Italy and elsewhere, you see it in France. And yet In the UK, it's the the first-past-the-post system that is holding these two parties, the two main parties in place. And yet it feels like that can't carry on forever. And at some point, something's got to give. Maybe the the first-past-the-post system will give. Maybe the parties will give. This election could test it. I mean, these are fundamentally, though the deal has united the Conservative Party for now, these are fundamentally divided parties. When and what is something going to give? You see it in the United States, too, a first, essentially a first-past-the-post system, but it's always those parties have always been more diverse than ours have. What's going to give here? Because these parties cannot carry on like this for 10, 20, 30 years. No, no,
1: it's cracking. It's obviously cracking. It's cracking first because we were always told that the point about the first-past-the-post system was that you had strong majority governments, and that clearly isn't the case anymore. It hasn't really been the case since, I suppose, 2005. I think the second thing which is um, cracking is that these parties are being dragged uh, to their extremes, clearly, largely because of something very understandable, which is the parties wanted to give their members more say in electing their leaders. It was a very understandable decision, very difficult to argue against. If you're a Labour MP, of course it sounds right that you're going to take the power away from union block votes and distribute it amongst the individual members. And of course, if you're a conservative, it makes sense to think you're gonna take it away from smoke-filled rooms and Macmillan sort of tapping Alec Douglas Hume on the shoulder towards a world in which all the members, the associations have a vote. But the the result, of course, has been that these, these members have tended to drag the Labour Party to the left and the Conservative Party to the right. And the Conservative Party is now, I think, permanently Drag to the right. This whole election strategy is... Permanently. Yeah, permanently, because this entire Dominic Cummings strategy is predicated on the idea that they lose 30 seats, basically, in Scotland, London, and the Southwest, which means they're 30 down before they start. So they've got to pick up 60, 80 seats, and they're going to try to pick them up in the Northeast. So they're going to try to pick up people who are, broadly speaking, uh, different ways of describing this voter group, but they're traditional uh, white working class labor voters who will have much more uh, conservative views on immigration, much more conservative views on law and order, probably much more conservative views on globalization, on a multi-ethnic state. And you can see this. There were stories coming out of Conservative Central Office that they were targeting people on the basis of their views on transgender was one of the ways in which they're picking up. Now, once you've built a coalition, that depends on, let's say, 60, 80 MPs that are representing Hartlepool, Sunderland, Bishop Auckland, it's very difficult to move back to the, to the centre ground because if you suddenly start to do what Boris sometimes pretends he wants to do, which is to sort of go back to um, the sort of social liberalism of the early Cameron era, those voters are not, not going to want that. I think you've been taken hostage by that group. You've created a Trumpian coalition, you've turned the Conservative Party into a sort of Trumpian Republican Party, which is why it's no accident really that that in a sense, yes, it's true that they threw out me and people like David Gork and Ken Clark, but it's also no accident that they're not giving us back the whip. You know, you would have thought they would give Ken Clark back at least the whip, but they really can't because they're, they're on this journey which I think they're not, not really coming back from. I think on that cheery note, we should open it up. Um. Thank, you, thank you very
0: much, uh, Rory. Just following on from that last point where you characterise some um, Northeastern voters, yeah. where does that leave the neoliberal, uh, deregulatory side of the Conservative Party? Is there a future for them, or um, is there a conflict between that group and uh, how will I, that be resolved?
1: There's, there's, a huge, there's a huge tension there, which it's really good that you've raised. And that's exemplified by the fact that, of course, one of the other people who's been thrown out of the party is Philip Hammond, who's a a sort of very strong fiscal conservative. And his basic disagreement with Boris isn't really on social issues or cultural issues. It's on uh, control of public spending. And I think what you'll see is that the new sort of Boris Johnson conservative ironically may end up spending more that isn't because they're becoming more centrist or more left-wing, but it's because it's perfectly compatible to be a big spender and be a populist. I mean, these things are not necessarily contradictory. But I think you're right in thinking that the sort of Philip Hammond strand, and to some extent the Ken Clark strand of conservative, it's not an accident that the only two sort of surviving ex-Chancellor's exchequer in the Conservative Party were amongst the 21 that were thrown out or David Gorky who's the chief secretary, that that strand is also being pushed aside. They're not very interested in debt and deficit.
0: Reduction. Didn't that start, though, under Theresa May? I mean, couldn't you see the beginnings of that in the mayhem? And It's not just Johnson and Cummings have come in. They were working on something that was already there. Yeah, yeah. very much. Very much.
1: That's true. So you talk about the kind of swing back to the right in the Tory party, and you've talked about the kind of... Deep chaos that seems to be gripping our democratic process at the moment. Is there anything to feel optimistic about in the kind of short to medium term future of British politics?
2: I, I think that the, the the reason for optimism is actually to look comparatively at what's going on in some other countries' politics, <laughs> <laughs> and to think that you know we've been through um, I think what. Well, most you would agree is a, a pretty terrible few years but it hasn't been marked by violence that might seem like you know like okay that we're setting the bar very low <laughs> but if you look at this from a long historical perspective and you look at what politics is like a lot of the time in a lot of countries in, in parts of the world and indeed has at times been in our own country's politics we have managed to Consider, let's put it that way. It stands of an incredibly difficult political um, question. Although I would say that we've had a constitutional crisis where we've been doing it. Most of the political discussion that takes place is still on the side of being quite civil. We're not seeing what's gone on in France, where you know it's very easy for Macron to you know like present himself as the person who's trying to reform the European Union, trying to fix Brexit trying to sort out the EU's relations with Russia, try to constrain Merkel about China. But actually, there's a domestic political crisis in France that's been going on for more than a year, which she doesn't seem to be too bothered about at all, and in which is, it's, the French system finds it's quite easy to you know, like, brush under the surface, whilst it's actually causing considerable um, distress to many people. It involves police brutality on a not-irregular basis towards... Protesters. So although this has been you know, very difficult and very painful for many of us, I still think that we need to bear in mind that politics is pretty difficult and that there are places where we haven't even thought about going, and that's a good thing.
0: It's a question that comes up a lot. We're asked it a lot, which is where, where is the optimism... And the thing that always puzzles me is is the optimists are identified often with the people who think it's okay, it's working okay, and the pessimists are the people who are saying it's really not working okay. And you'll read newspaper articles where people saying this is how democracy is meant to work and it's so robust and healthy and so on. Whereas I think those people are the pessimists because they can't imagine it happening any differently. And I think we're the optimists. I think we're the people who are saying, call it out in real terms, if it's not working, it doesn't mean the thing that I've been writing about and talking about for the past few years, I'm sort of sick of it. It's just, I hate this choice between we cling on to this democracy or we're facing fascism, authoritarianism, populism. Whatever. There's that binary choice. So we're forced to cling on to this thing. That, to me, is the pessimistic view. The optimistic view is we're not forced to cling on to this thing. It's not working. Let's do it differently. There are a hundred ways you could do democracy, and this is one. And we don't try the others because we're frightened of change. We vote for change, but we're frightened of change. So why don't we embrace it? I think that's the optimistic view. This is a great moment. I'm not sure this election will deliver it. (laughs) But uh, it's democracy. This is just one election. There's there's the next 10, 15 years. It won't be like this. But we're so risk-averse when it comes to our institutions. It's just baffling. We take these incredible risks with everything else, and then we make people run over the road to vote. Because if we tinker with that, it'll all fall apart. It's madness.
1: Rory, I find it really difficult to square... At the height of the Tory leadership election, you gave this great moment where you said if Boris tries to shut Parliament down, we'll sit over the road and we'll bring him down. I can't square that in my mind with your pitch to be to be Mayor of London and the, the denigration of that institution. Yes, Parliament is fl- fundamentally very flawed... But it has still achieved some remarkable things in the last couple of years, particularly checking the government's excesses of executive power. Surely you'd make more of a difference staying where you are and trying to reform that institution. Well, it's a very it's a very good very good and fundamental challenge. And I mean leaving today, I mean obviously before I came to see you, I was having um, I was sitting in the tea room eating my bacon and eggs at half past six this evening. And there is a sort of sort of mysterious quality to Parliament. I mean, it is something that for some hundreds of years has been the great defender of our liberty. It's something that I feel, you know, the last speech I gave was very much about this. I mean, the reason I voted against the programme motion, against the government's timetable, is I felt that it was deeply contemptuous of Parliament, that we have to try to take Parliament seriously. But at the same time, of course, I was aware that all my colleagues were saying to me, why are you insisting on four days of committee stage, four days of report? You know as well as I do that none of us are gonna read the withdrawal agreement. None of us are gonna actually you know, understand any of this. We're not gonna be able to get any amendments through, so why can't we just get it done in two days? So that I was in this awkward position of saying, okay, I get it. You don't take this institution seriously. You don't read this stuff, but you ought to, and you ought to pretend to take this institution seriously. You ought to go through the motions of taking this institution seriously. And at this point about proroguing Parliament, I mean, I felt that very strongly, that if he were trying to take a no-deal Brexit through by proroguing Parliament, we should sit here. I mean, in this building was my idea. As it was, we were able to vote against a no-deal Brexit, so it didn't feel as necessary, but it was also true that when I tried to convince colleagues to come with me, they weren't interested, to be honest. And I don't know what to make of this, but I suppose with all its strengths and weaknesses, I'm coming to the view that it's not a sensible system. I can't really defend it. I, I can't defend the fact that you're all sitting here and they're all sitting there and I don't really understand why it makes sense for you to give up for five years your views to that group of people rather than you being able to be involved more regularly in a deliberative democracy.
0: And now that you know tonight that on the 12th of December it'll be over, do you feel a pang at all or not? When you think about when you arrived and you you must have had a moment when you arrived of feeling that you'd arrived
1: somewhere really valuable
0: and important (coughs) and now you're leaving it, is Hmm. there a...
1: I had an an odd experience there. I mean, I, I arrived and, of course, I think my first major speech was on Afghanistan and I was really looking forward to it because I'd spent most of the previous decade working on or around Afghanistan. And um, I stood up, sat down, stood up, sat down, stood up, sat down. The speaker wouldn't call me, and gradually he reduces the amount of time that you're allowed to speak. Nine minutes, eight minutes, seven minutes, six minutes, eight. And by the time I stood up to speak, I, I, I got four minutes to give my little views on Afghanistan. And one of the reasons I'd come into parliament is I thought that I'd spent a lot of time as, a, as a, an employee of the government... And I thought, it's the politicians' fault that we're in Iraq and Afghanistan, and I'm going to become a politician, and I'm going to sort this out. And then I, there I am, my four-minute speech, and everybody's on their phones, and the only person watching my speech is my mother. And, um, and I felt deeply disappointed. But then last week, I was reading, or two weeks ago, a biography of a 19th century politician. Andrew Gailey, his biographer, says, you know, like all members of parliament entering parliament in the the 1830s, he went in with a very romantic idea that this was a place where you could make great speeches and change policy. And as soon as he made his first speech, he realized they were all half asleep or reading the newspapers and nothing he said made any difference at all. So clearly this has been a a running trope in British Parliament almost forever. But the truth of the matter is I was deeply unhappy. I mean, I found the only consolation in my first two, three years in Parliament was in my constituency in Cumbria, where I but even there it was very frustrating, because the things that I wanted to do for local people were not within my power. Right? I couldn't install the broadband, I couldn't sort out the duty of the A66, I couldn't sort out planning. This was all local council stuff, right? all I could do is write letters to the council. And then, again as a minister, it's deeply, deeply frustrating, I mean our system is very, very odd very difficult to really get things done. I mean, even for someone like me who's quite impatient, very difficult to get stuff done. The only job I really felt very grateful to have was was the job of being prisons minister, where for once there was something tangible, 123 prisons in England and Wales, a very, very shocking situation, and some hope that I could make a small improvement, and I had some idea of how one could do that. I'm also very lucky because the chief executive of the prison service went halfway through, so I was able to be much more operationally connected but generally speaking I I feel that in eight out of my nine years in parliament I made much less difference than I did running a small charity on the ground in Afghanistan you know really much much less impact in people's lives very difficult you know the things that you do as a minister I mean they feel big I was the minister who signed the plastic bag tax so theoretically that sounds like a big thing because you know you've reduced by billions the number of plastic bags and we have raised all this money and it's been great for the environment but it doesn't feel like that. What it feels like is that you've signed a bit of paper. Because you're not really the person implementing And actually, of course, you're aware that seven years of policy preceded you. And if I hadn't signed it, somebody else would have signed it. I mean, it's... You know, I, I cannot quite communicate how much uh, this system is bizarre and how much you're being lied to. Because MPs don't want to tell you how powerless they are. Ministers don't want to tell you how little they know. Secretaries of state don't want to inform you how little they've achieved. Nobody on the National Security Council wants to tell you what a total joke the National Security Council is. Um, but, but frankly, the emperor has no clothes, and you, you don't want to be dancing around naked in that gothic shouting chamber forever. So, so, so can I... do I mean, this is
0: a quick, a quick question. It's not a frivolous question, but... Being mayor of London is also said to be a fairly frustrating job. <laughs>
1: Uh, I disagree. Right, no, me, right okay, but would, yeah. it, would it feel different? No, I think it would feel very different. And let, let me try to explain why. Because the fundamental problem of a Member of Parliament is the things that people are interested in you doing you have no power over, at least from a theoretical point of view. When I am walking in Brixton and a guy comes out of his shop and he's worried about the local police, the Mayor of London is the Police and Crime Commissioner. Right, if somebody is complaining to me on the tube about the Piccadilly Line the Mayor of London is responsible for transport of London. It's much more like what I found as the Minister for Prisons. There is something tangible there. There's something where you could say to people, in four years, do you feel safer? Is your commute better? Is your housing more affordable? If it isn't, I'll resign. I mean, you can imagine that conversation in a way that's much more difficult than Member of Parliament.
2: I was just going to pick up something that um, Rory said at the beginning, and I think that it's... uh it goes to this heart of this idea that somehow Parliament is a defender of our liberties. I think that actually comes from, again, not understanding our own political history as a country and our constitution's history. It isn't Parliament that's the guardian of our liberties. We're supposed to be the guardian of our liberties, including guarding our liberties against Parliament, not just against the executive. And I think one of the things that's, that's kind of gone wrong in terms of the political debate in which we, that we've had is, is that parliament has set itself up as a symbol of too much it is sort of said that it's got the right to control the executive even in some sense where treaties are concerned to take over the executive as if in doing so it is defending our liberties because parliament's supposed to be the defender of our liberties but it's not doing that when it's trying to take over the executive it's actually in some sense i think getting in the way of the people's liberties in, in this respect but it, I think it comes out of the fact that we don't understand what constitutionally we as citizens are supposed to do in our country's politics, which includes defending our liberties from MPs and calling them to account when they are acting in ways that are not responsive to their constituents, and in some sense being willing to call them out when they are trying to usurp powers from the executive. That's good. We've sort of been hearing a bit about how we want some constitutional change, perhaps, but also maybe from other people about writing the constitutional ship and wanting to go back to sort of perhaps where we were before. If you think about the three options maybe available of respecting the result, having a new referendum, or just parliament... Ignoring the referendum result. What do you think of the constitutional implications, and are those good or bad for perhaps what you've each perspectively been saying about those?
0: <laughs> <laughs> so Parliament ignoring the result has always seemed, I think we probably all three would agree to be, uh, not just constitutionally, but politically, a precarious route. I mean, it's, it's still possible. We don't know what's going to happen in this election. I mean, there, there is also a basic question about the role of referendums, because this is not the Whatever happens, that was not the last referendum we're going to have. And so I think there is also a wider constitutional question about how we want to do these in future. And Rory, I was saying when you were out of the room that it seems to me that the role of deliberative assemblies and citizens assemblies. It, you know, a citizen assembly is not now, I think, going to resolve Brexit. But to have had much more deliberation earlier in the referendum process could have been transformative. So many of the pitfalls could have been. So I think there are serious whatever. I mean, I'm not. I know I'm not answering the question, but there are serious constitutional things to be addressed. Regardless, but I, th- I also think there are no easy. I mean, that's the thing. It's not like there is a way out of this, which is the constitutionally safe route. I mean, you, you know,
1: Johnson winning this election and getting his deal through is not constitutionally safe, is it? I mean, I think it's a very good question, and I don't have the answer to it. I mean, just one small footnote, Um, one of the things that I feel as a Member of Parliament, which is quite difficult to articulate, I've never explained properly, is that it does seem to me important that every single Member of Parliament personally promised repeatedly to respect the result of that referendum. You know, all the way through that referendum campaign, we were asked again and again on television and by journalists, quite understandably, will you accept the result of the referendum if it goes against you? And all of us said, of course we will, of course we will, of course we will. Now, somebody said to me recently, well, you know, I often promise to buy my four-year-old some jelly beans and, you know, I don't know. It's different, right? I mean, I think it's different. If a, a member of parliament, every political party, the government itself promises to respect something, the word of the Member of Parliament does matter a bit. And that's one of the reasons why I found it very, very difficult to, to not honour the result of that referendum, even though I, I voted for Remain and disagreed profoundly with the, the decision people made.
2: Yeah. I think that constitutionally, the, the best thing would be for the general election to resolve this question now in the sense that a referendum was held Article 50 was triggered. Article 50 basically gave the authority to the executive to negotiate a withdrawal agreement with the European Union. Such an agreement has been negotiated. Indeed, two such agreements have been negotiated. And now that the, the government, although it lacks a, a parliamentary majority, can in some sense test itself in a general election to see if there's sufficient consent to proceed with that withdrawal agreement. I think that's all constitutionally fine. I think the paradox is that actually in terms of political legitimation and securing losers' consent, that actually the best outcome, or the least bad outcome, would actually be to have another referendum and for Leave to win again. In constitutional terms, I think it would be ridiculous to have another referendum. And that is in some sense part part of the the problem. There's no constitutional justification for having another referendum, but if Leave were to win it, it would, I think, diminish significantly our loser's consent problem.
0: But if Leave were to lose it?
2: If Leave were to lose it, that's, a, that's yeah.
0: So we, <laughs> I was we, trying to be optimistic. We have about <laughs> five more minutes um, and lots of questions. Should we take two or three? Um, hi. How does an old country draft a new constitution? So there's a small one to start with.
2: (laughs) Yes. um, I just wanted to ask about an issue which I think we've been sort of dancing around, um, which is divisions in this country, north and south, rural and urban. We hear a lot of language
1: around left behind in terms of people from the north in rural communities. What
2: do you say to the criticism that your decision to move from representing Cumbria to... Campaigning for the mayoral election in
1: London is part of this issue of politicians reaching prominence in northern seats and then forgetting those who gave them that power and moving towards the metropolitan, you know, the attraction of London and leaving those people behind as it's happened again and again.
0: And then one more.
1: Thank you very much. I just had a quick question about the role of the media. We're about to go into an election campaign where there'll be a legal obligation to cover both or all the parties equally. Um, And I wanted to ask the panel to reflect on uh, what they think the... I also saw that the Telegraph is up for sale now. Um, It's part of the context here, I think. But I wanted to ask a question about the role of the media since the referendum and how you think the evolution of the kind of media landscape has played into the issues we've been discussing.
0: So so taking three questions (laughs) with five minutes to go always opens up lots of things we can talk about. Rory, do you want to take the one directly at you first and yeah. then we'll come on yeah. to those I wider? Mean, let,
1: me, let me take that. I mean, I, I would have liked, actually, and I, I, I tried to do this earlier on, to, to be a mayor for Cumbria. If there had been a sort of American gubernatorial system, I would have loved to do that. There isn't a direct democratic position in Cumbria. And I, I felt that I wasn't helping people in the way that I'd like to. And I feel that I've got a relatively short life, and I want to try to help people. And I think this is a role where I may be able to do more of that. On the same level, you're absolutely right. I mean, Cumbria is marginalized, is neglected in many ways. It doesn't have the same problems that London has. I and mean, I, you know, the I was in Poplar and saw somebody being stabbed to death and bleed to death on the ground in a way that I've never seen in Cumbria. But It is ageing. It is affected by barriers of distance. There is poverty in West Cumbria. And I think you're right. I mean, I think I am playing into that narrative. And I think people in Cumbria have a right to be disappointed and angry. Yeah, I agree with you. Helen,
0: if we were to, if this constitution were broken and we needed to change it, how would we do it?
2: Well, I think the The question in some sense is is even harder than the one that was was posed from up there because it's not just an old country that would need a a new constitution it's actually a complicated multinational country in which there are different understandings of what the constitution has historically been and that has therefore of the constitution that has therefore um, broken down in different parts of the union and I think that in one part of it the largest part of it, England the idea of the historical constitution is actually bound up with the idea of what England is as a nation and I think that that is part of what was manifesting itself in Brexit in part in England is that vote for leave was a vote for the historic constitution the idea that the British set of institutions could make its own laws according to its own constitution, so if we're simultaneously saying we're leaving the European Union, um, it, that is both in perception and in some sense in actuality a claim of the old constitution back. And we're simultaneously saying because of the complete breakdown of the constitution that we've had over the last few years, though I would say it actually pre-existed Brexit, that we need a new constitution, and we're going to have to have this new constitution at a moment of profound political disagreement. I'm really not sure how all that, that goes together. And... So.
1: <laughs> so, 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 let me just come in on yeah. this. One of the reasons I'm optimistic, though, is because of people like this. I mean, I think it's, it's really, really cheering the level of calm, moderate, thoughtful, very, very intelligent debate about these issues. I mean, I think it's, it's very exciting, and I relate this relates slightly to the question about the media, because we're not getting this in the media. I mean, who's actually said... You in the get it, United, it on Talking Politics. Except for Talking Politics. <laughs> unless you listen to the Talking Sometimes. Politics podcast as you ought to. Um, you know, where else do you get people pointing out that we live in this very complicated, multinational setup, and that actually our ideas of the Constitution are a very English idea of the Constitution? I mean, but these are really important, and the fact that we can have these conversations, we have people who are this thoughtful and this able to see both sides of the argument, able to present it so clearly, and that you're all prepared to turn up and listen... Uh, to people talking in, about the intricacies of the British Constitution uh, late on uh, whatever night we're on. Um, I, it really fills me full of joy and makes me think deliberative democracy is the future of Britain.
0: <laughs> I think that's a good note on which to, uh, to end. So thank you all very, very much for coming. Particularly thank you to Rory. For, uh, we were very worried at about 25 past seven, and we are absolutely thrilled that, that you made it here tonight. Thank you also to the London Review of Books for their support for us and also for everything that they do. Happy birthday to them. You can read Rory on the London Review of Books in the New York Times, uh, uh, where it's being celebrated as in many other places. Talking Politics will be trying to be measured and calm over the next few weeks. Now that we know that this is coming, we will be having our regular episodes, but we'll also be trying to take a step back. Next week, we're talking to Esther Duflo, the Nobel Prize-winning economist, and we will not be talking to her about Boris Johnson. I absolutely guarantee it. Until then, thank you for coming. My name is David Runciman, and we've all been talking politics.